0: The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. You guys are in Luke 7, uh, the the Gospel of Luke, so we're going to be in Luke 7 today. I want to take a look at this wonderful story of redemption from the Gospel of Luke, uh, the story of the sinful woman, as it's often called. Uh, And these stories in Luke are are so um, poignant and powerful. And part of God's design, we learn a lot through story. Uh, The scriptures teach us often at times just through propositional truth, so they just present truth to to hold on to. But a lot of scripture, actually most of scripture, is story. God uses stories to communicate in powerful ways. We are we are made in His image, and we learn through stories. I uh, I remember actually a story that that teaches a lesson. Um, I don't know if you guys know Aesop's Fables. There's all sorts of stories, but there's a story of uh, Androcles and the lion. You guys, anyone remember that story? There's this guy named Androcles, and he's a he's a slave, and he escapes, and he's, I guess, when you're know, wandering around, he wanders into a cave, and in that cave is a ferocious lion. But the lion is hurt, actually. It has a giant thorn through its foot, and rather than run out of the cave or, or try to finish off the lion somehow... Androcles actually takes the thorn out of the lion's foot. Uh, the story continues. Uh, Androcles goes on his way, the lion goes on his way, and then later on, Androcles gets captured. He's in the arena uh, in like the Roman Colosseum, and he's gonna be he's basically being thrown to the lions. And this this ferocious lion is there, and he comes towards Androcles, and right before he's about to devour Androcles, he starts acting like a kitten with Androcles. And it turns out it's that same lion that he had met in the cave years before had taken the thorn out of its paw. So that's a cool story, and it communicates a, a moral, a truth, right, which is uh, kindness can have hidden returns, right? It's, a, it's always worth it to be kind. But the story is a much better way to teach that than for me just to say to you, kindness has its hidden rewards. And that's how God's Word is. And this story today we're going to look at communicates a core truth. We'll talk about that indeed. But, the, but I want you to basically enter into this story. Let the story have its way with you as you listen to it, uh, as we go over it, and and allow it to have its effect on you. There's some important things the Lord wants to do through his word and through this story. So let's pray and ask him to help us. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this amazing true story here in Luke chapter 7. And Lord, I thank you that that today you desire uh, to communicate truth to us in a real way that changes our lives. You want us to feel this story. You want us to know your truth in a in a more powerful way, perhaps, than we've known it before. So come and be with us, Spirit of God. Help me to teach well, explain well, and I pray that, that you, Jesus, would be on full display for all of us to see. We yes, ask in Christ's name, amen. Amen. So Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 36, it says, One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, speaking of Jesus, Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him. She is a sinner. And Jesus, answering, said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors, one owed five hundred denarii, and the other fifty. When they could not pay, he cancelled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he cancelled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged right. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. And those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this? Who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So I just want to walk us through this story to take time to observe what's going on. And, and I hope. Uh, to enter into the story. I want to paint a picture uh, of this story in a way where I, I hope you can feel yourself even in the story. So as I begin, I want to invite you into the living room or the dining room, room of Simon the Pharisee. Now, if you were part of that culture, you would already have known just how important eating together is. Feasting together, eating together. It's important to us and for sure. We enjoy eating together, but it had a more prominent role in the culture at that time, who you ate with said a lot about who you were. And you would be careful, actually, to make sure you invited the friends that you treasured, the family members that, that uh, you loved, to eat with you regularly. And you would be careful, actually, to not eat with the wrong sort of people as well, because that would define you. And that, that's the background here, this, the whole practice of feasting and eating with people in, in a way that kind of makes a statement about community and about who we are. That's, that's important to understand here. And, and what's going on is Simon uh, has invited Jesus into his home. And this is probably a, a special Sabbath meal, uh, a little different than the regular meals. Uh, it was a, more of like a, like a party, uh, a feast. Uh, and Simon was a Pharisee. Simon was a member of, of this religious group called the Pharisees. And they were uh, very serious about following God and obeying his law. Uh, they followed the teachings of the Pharisees, but the, but Pharisees themselves, most of them, were just uh, were lay people. They they were not priests. They were not part of uh, of serving in the temple necessarily. And so Simon is a very devout and well-to-do man in in the town. He's probably perhaps one of the wealthiest and one of the most devout men in, in the town. And so it makes sense, of course, Jesus is in town, and the reputation of Jesus has been circulating. He's known as a, a rabbi who teaches the truth, who who does miracles, and maybe he's a prophet. And so given that Jesus is in town, it's really Simon's duty almost to invite this important rabbi. That's what's going on here. And so he has a feast. Now these feasts, uh, by the way, the Sabbath feasts, were, were open-door sort of feasts in towns for someone especially like Simon, um, anyone could come to the feast. Now, there would be the honored guests at the feast, and they would sit around a table that was low on the ground, and they would sit on, basically prop themselves up on pillows and lean into the table, and their feet would be away from the table, so that's what's going on. So the important guests, the important family members and so forth would be around that table. But then around the the outside of the room, uh, there would be other people as well from the town who, who could come in. It was an open-door policy for these sorts of feasts, and it was a way to take care of the poor. Um, so they would be fed. They could have some of the food as well. But they were observers, really. And the key participants were those around the table. That's what's going on. So just picture yourself as as one of those guests maybe up against the wall watching these interactions, watching this interaction with Jesus and this woman, watching uh, Simon and the other leaders that are there and what, and what they do. So that's what's going on. They're at this feast, and then behold, uh, a woman of the city who was a sinner comes in. This is kind of an awkward moment at this feast, all right? So, again, who you ate with and what you what you did at these feasts was really important with who you are. And so they're there, and it's an open-door policy, but it, but she's probably the one person you were hoping wouldn't come to your feast. She shows up, and she's there. And she comes in, and they know who she is. Everyone probably in the room and the, from the town knew who she was. She was a sinner, as it says, but when it says that in Scripture, uh, it 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 really speaks of a Jewish person who really had given up any any attempt to appear religious. Most of the community would have been very devout and practiced their their faith and worshiping God regularly. But then there were people in the in the community who basically they gave up on it and they gave up on any sort of appearance of trying to follow God, and they were they were ostracized. And they were considered basically without hope because they had given up in following God, trusting God. So they were considered cut off from God, and they were ostracized by the community. There was no compassion for them, basically. And that's who this woman is. They know this. She shows up, and she's there, and it's it's an awkward moment. You need to uh, appreciate what's going on, what it would be like for you sitting there watching this, thinking, okay, this is really cool. Jesus is here. Uh, I want to hear what he, he has to say, and Simon and these other guys are here, and you're thinking this way, and all of a sudden, uh-oh. That woman is here. And it's not just that she's there. She comes towards Jesus, it says, and she's standing behind him at his feet. So he's leaning into the table, and she comes around the edge, and she's standing behind him at his feet. And she's there holding an alabaster jar of of ointment. Alabaster is like a porcelain sort of ceramic. It's a special sort of jar that would have preserved what was in it really well. And, and these jars would have held perfume in it or ointment in it that was very expensive. Uh, for a lot of people and probably for this woman, this was her life savings. This is maybe what she had as far as from her parents or whatever left over. It was very expensive. And so she is sitting there holding this expensive thing of ointment, and she's crying. She's standing at his feet. And she's crying. And she's not just like crying a little bit. It's not just like a couple tears coming down her face as she, whatever she's going through happens. She, she is profusely crying. Uh, the word or it is, is a word that is used for like rain showers. So she's basically at his feet and she is she's profusely crying and her tears are flooding Jesus' feet. So it's awkward on top of awkward here that's going on. She's wetting his feet with with her tears, and she's known for who she is. And then she goes even further in awkwardness. Rather than maybe just trying to fix the situation at that point, she goes even further. She goes down to his feet, and she lets down her hair. Now, for us, like, that's not a big deal. But for them, you didn't go out in public as a woman without a head covering. And you didn't ever let down your hair except in private. And it was something reserved for the bedroom in that culture. And so her, she's crying and she's weeping at Jesus' feet, holding this jar of perfume. And her next step is to actually go down and let her hair down, take her hood off, let her hair down, and then start to wipe his feet with her hair. And she starts to kiss his feet. She's kissing this man in front of everybody, kissing his feet with her hair being let down, with her tears pouring out profusely over his feet, and then she pours out the alabaster jar of perfume, of ointment on his feet. Every eye in the room is fixed on this woman and what's going on as she is at Jesus' feet. There is a tension in the room at this point that like you could, as I say, cut with a knife. It, everybody felt it. Everybody was thinking this was awkward, and now it's super awkward. Now it's outrageous. What in the world is going to happen? Imagine the room, apart from her, her cries. was totally something. And as this goes on, Simon, of course, is thinking of things. Simon is the leader there. He's responsible for this feast. He's responsible ultimately for the awkwardness that's here. And, and yet this is Jesus, the great Rabbi, the prophet. And yet this is this woman in this situation. And so he's thinking things that, that are natural for him and in, in where he was and his perspective. He was thinking, what sort of prophet or rabbi have I let into my house? What sort of prophet is this? You can't tell who this woman is and what her background is probably thinking even like just a street-smart person would understand what's going on here and how outrageous this is and how inappropriate this is. He's thinking those sorts of things, and yet it's silent. No one knows his thoughts. We know his thoughts because it's captured here in Scripture. No one knows his thoughts but himself and one other person who knows him even better than he knows his own thoughts. Jesus. Jesus is aware of what Simon's thinking. He's aware of what this woman is thinking, and, and he's aware of this woman's background. And he breaks the silence with the introduction. Simon, I I have something to say to you. There's a, a statement full of potential meaning, and Simon responds relatively cordially. Say it, teacher. Teacher is a word of respect, but I think at this point, Simon's thinking, I'm not sure what sort of teacher we got on our hands here. And Jesus tells a story. It's a story within a story. Jesus teaches through stories. Uh, Just side note, right? Just understand how important stories are. How Jesus teaches us through stories, and, and I think we learn through stories. So I just want to encourage you. You guys talked about community, uh, community groups, missional groups. And, and uh, for those of you who have kids, uh, just remember the power of story. Tell lots of redemptive stories. Share stories with your children. Uh, those are the things that are going to grab a hold of their, of their imaginations in their hearts. And so Jesus knows uh, the power of story. So he tells a story. It's a story that's simple. Short and direct. It's a story about two men who owe money to a local banker. One owes uh, 50 days wages, another 500 days wages. So that's kind of the difference between a guy who has a car loan and someone who has a house loan. So two different loans are both sizable. One's a good deal, bigger than the other, right, a mortgage. So there's these two guys, and they both default on their loan. And the banker in the story decides to cancel the loan. Now, that's really unusual, and there's a lot of background probably to how would that ever be? Why would a banker do that? This is, But this is a gracious banker, and Jesus is getting at, through the story, the nature of his father, his nature, and his graciousness. But for the point of the story, the banker cancels the loan, and he asks Simon, which of the two would love the banker more? It's obvious, right? There's no way to answer otherwise. He could could have just said, I'm not answering because this is a trap. Um, But he says instead, I suppose the one who had the larger debt canceled. So the point is established in his response. Yeah, of course, the one with the larger debt. Now Jesus goes in uh, for the kill with the point to bring it home to Simon, to bring it home to everybody, to bring it home to us today as well. He says, Simon, you didn't wash my feet when I came in. It was actually a common courtesy to to provide for the washing of your guests' feet. They wore sandals, and they, the, dirt, the streets were dirt. They weren't paved. And so you walked around, and your feet were dirty, and there were animals out there in the street. And so if you came into a house, uh, you would get your feet washed. It was a normal thing to do. And especially for an honor guest, You would have had one of your servants wash his feet. And so Jesus says, you didn't wash my feet. You didn't provide this, this really uh, almost basic courtesy. And yet this woman came in, and she has wet my feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. She is extravagant in washing my feet, is what Jesus is saying, compared to you not washing my feet. He goes on. He says, you gave me no kiss. Again, a little different than our culture. Um, Most of us don't kiss the Greek, but some of us, maybe with certain backgrounds, would do that. In certain parts of the world, uh, when you greet someone, you see them, you give them a kiss. And it was true in this day that it was part of how you greeted people. It It was a sign of affection and respect, actually. And so men would kiss men on the cheek, sort of thing. It was a way that you greeted. And so it was normal to do this with people that you loved and appreciated. Yet Simon had not kissed Jesus. And Jesus says, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. He says, you gave me no oil for my head. This was also a sign of uh, affection and honor at, at a higher level. For someone you particularly respected and loved, you would you would welcome them to a Sabbath feast and you would anoint their head with oil. You'd have a special anointing oil. And that would be a way to, you know, to bless them and let them know that you honored them and that they were your honored guests. But Simon had not done this. You gave me no oil for my head. And yet she has anointed my feet with ointment. Simon's lack of care and honor for his guest is a stark contrast to the appropriate honor the woman gives him and which as the true son of God in their midst, he gladly receives. It's fitting to honor Jesus the way the woman honored Jesus. She gets who he is. Simon doesn't. Now, he begins to explain really through his actions and his words why there is this contrast what the difference is what the root of the difference is and so right in front of everybody he pronounces the woman's sins forgiven already literally he says uh, her sins which are many have been forgiven we have are forgiven it's a it's a word that means already accomplished i tell you her sins which are many have been forgiven he pronounces her sins forgiven in front of everybody. And he does that related to what he's teaching, relating to why this woman is so different than you, Simon. He's not saying this to merely be provocative, though he wants them to understand he is not any mere rabbi or mere prophet. He is the, the prophet, the prophet of prophets. He is God in the flesh before them. And the response to him is to be something radically different than Simon's response. And this woman understands that. She understands who he is and what it means to be forgiven. And her great love and her extravagant devotion and gratefulness is a result of her having been forgiven, getting who she is and getting who Jesus is and what it means to to have your sins forgiven by Christ God in the flesh and to be counted as his own. Now, we don't know the background of the woman. It doesn't disclose who she is. It doesn't give her a name. She's not Mary Magdalene. It's a different woman. She's not Mary of Bethany. She's a different person. We don't know. But we do know, that you've been going through Luke, that Jesus has been traveling around and proclaiming who he is, proclaiming the kingdom and telling people, repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. The Messiah has come and he's disclosing indirectly that he is the promised one. And he's teaching the good news of the kingdom and people are coming to new life in Christ. Perhaps she was a friend of Matthew. She's a sinner. Matthew was a sinner. He was an outcast. Perhaps she was a friend of Matthew. Perhaps she had already met Jesus at Matthew's party. We don't know the particulars, but we do know that she has already been forgiven. She has already come to understand Jesus. She has found forgiveness in new life. She has found an alternative for her life full of guilt and confusion and loneliness in Jesus. She understands the wonder that God loves sinners. God loves the undeserving. God longs for sinners to return to him and put their faith in him, to turn away from sin and find forgiveness in life. She understands this, and that's what's motivating her. That's the background. That's what's happening. Now in the story, he pronounces her sins forgiven. And at the end, people are asking, What's going on? What's happening here? Who is this, a mere man, to forgive sins? And it's interesting to note that the story pretty much ends at that point. It says, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go. In peace, he pronounces over this woman that her faith has saved you, has rescued you from your your state of living in your sin uh, uh, apart from God. you are now safe in the Lord, and you can go in peace, you have a new life uh, you 're no longer the sinner you 're no longer the outcast, you are the beloved you are you are god 's daughter and he pronounces that to her that she 's forgiven, she has been saved, she can go in peace and then the story ends. But if you were in the room, you would know that there's a lot more that's probably going to happen at that point. But the story doesn't capture that. It just ends. Why does it do that? Why, why doesn't it tell us what Simon said next or what Jesus said next or what the people said next? Did they run Jesus out of the room or or did they say, "Wow, we understand now what happened? We, we don't know. The story just ends. Why would Luke choose to end it there and not tell us more? I think it's because he wants to know not what he wants to know not what Simon did or what Jesus did, but what you would do with the story. What is your reaction to this story? And there's two things I think that are important for us to understand in this story that are challenging us or meant to challenge us. First this isn't just Jesus, the witty guy who has a, a witty answer, who, who knows a little bit of prophetically what Simon is thinking. This is not just Jesus, a, a good teacher, or a gracious person. There's really no room for that in this story because he forgives sins. He has authority to forgive the sins of this woman, that if he were merely a man, it really wouldn't be his business what she had done to another. How she, he, she had treated someone else or mistreated someone else. That's really between her and that other person and God. And so when Jesus says your sins are forgiven, he's making it very clear. This is what got him into trouble with people like Simon. Making it very clear that he is God and he does have authority to forgive sin. So this story presents us with the question of who is Jesus? And who do I think he is, and what will I do with him? There are two people in the story, and they have two drastically different reactions to who Jesus is and who they think he is. We have Simon, and we have the woman. One, Simon is self-sufficient, self-righteous, and self-assured from what we can tell. The other is the woman who is a sinner and knows it. One sees Jesus as a charlatan or a quack, the other as God himself, the forgiver of her sins. And the question for us is, which of the two are we? Which of the two do we want to be? There's no room here for a nice Jesus, a good teacher merely, a witty person. There's only room here for God in the flesh. And all that that means What he says is true, that in him is real forgiveness, in him is real reconciliation with God, in him is real hope for lives lost in sin. The second point that this presses on us is really the moral of the story. He who is forgiven much, loves much. He who is forgiven much, loves much. And I think it's the, the desire of every Christian, really, right, to love God more. I think we all feel often, why don't I love him more? Why do I wander away into other things? Why do I not treasure him and follow him as much as I ought? I think that's every Christian's struggle. And this passage helps us with that tremendously. How do we learn to love him more? Well, Jesus teaches us the, the fundamental difference between someone like Simon and someone like the sinful woman. And in verse 47, as we've already read, he he teaches us: he who sins, uh, he who is forgiven little loves little. Little. This woman, her sins are, which are many, are forgiven. She loves much. The way it's worded, by the way, in verse 47. Uh, read it again. Her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. Some have struggled with it. Does that mean that she's forgiven because she loves much? Well, no. She's forgiven. The word is already forgiven. For she loved much. It's just connecting the two. It's like if I said uh, it's raining outside because the window windows are wet. It's not raining because the windows are wet. Uh, the windows are wet because it's raining. That's what's going on here. So don't get that confused. Her sins, which are many, are forgiven, therefore she loved much. It's really another way to put it. But he who is forgiven little loves little. This is the key here. Now, Jesus is being very gracious in the story to Simon, by the way, because from what we can tell, Simon doesn't love at all. Simon has not come to Jesus as the only one who can forgive his sins. And so there's no forgiveness in, in Simon, and therefore no real love. But nevertheless, the point is really true and important. So how does this work then? Do we need to sin up a lot, a big storm of sin somehow so that we can love God more? Is it because we just don't have enough sins in our lives that are forgiven? Therefore, the equation is, you know, I want to love God more, so i got to go out and do more stuff that's bad, so then I can get forgiven. And then kind of then I'll have a heart to love God. No, that's not the answer. The problem with Simon was not that he had sinned little. That wasn't the problem. The problem wasn't that Simon had sinned less than the sinful woman either, whatever her background was. The problem was Simon thought he had sinned less than the woman. Simon had a huge sin inventory, believe me, every human being does. Now, Simon's sins were probably different sorts of sins than the woman's sins. Hers were the obvious and outward ones that that everybody usually is like, those are bad things. Simon's were the acceptable sins, probably. Things, things like pride and self righteousness and self sufficiency and maybe gossip. And it's interesting to look as you're going through Luke, I'm sure you're seeing this. The sorts of sins that Jesus comes down hardest on are the sins of people like Simon. So Simon had no lack of sin inventory. And my friends fellow human beings, my brothers and sisters, you have no lack of sin inventory. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God in many ways. Now, some of us, they're obvious. That does help when we realize that. Some of us are less obvious, but before the Lord, they are all very serious. So if you want to love much, you need to understand that you've been forgiven much. And that comes from understanding that all of us have sinned much. And even more importantly, the wonderful good news. The hero of this story, Jesus himself, goes on from this place in Luke 7 to go to the cross, be the sacrificial lamb, to take on himself your sins and my sins, to pay for them in Full, the, the just, righteous price to be paid for our sins, to satisfy God's goodness and good requirements fully by a perfect life offered on the cross in your place so that you can be forgiven like this woman and that you can love much like her as well. moral of this story we learn He's forgiven much, loves much. The call of this story is for us to live in that reality and to see ourselves in the story alongside the woman. as we live in these truths with her, to love much, to love Jesus much as well. So well, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this story. We thank you for forgiveness and all the reasons in the universe to love you with everything we are forever. Fill our hearts afresh with love for you as a result we pray. In Jesus' name, Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire.